From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. I am Dan Snow. On the podcast today, we have got an episode of our sibling podcast, Warfare. It's all about military history, folks. Military history from the early modern to the 20th century. Presented by James Rogers. In this episode, he talks to Saul David about the Battle of Okinawa. One of the last great battles of the Second World War, fought on the island of Okinawa. When US troops landed on the 1st of April 1945, it was the largest single amphibious assault in the Pacific theatre of World War II. It was savage, savage battle lasting 100 days. But it was decided that Okinawa was essential for the final operation downfall, the invasion of the Japanese homelands, which would have taken place after it. It never, of course, happened because the dropping of the nuclear bombs and the Japanese surrender. But Okinawa is only about 500 kilometres away from the Japanese home islands. For this podcast, James talked to the brilliant Saul David. He's been on my podcast many times, and now it's great to have him on Warfare. He's a professor of military history at the University of Buckingham. He's just written Crucible of Hell about this campaign, and he is a wonderful, wonderful guy. If you like what you hear, you can go and subscribe to Warfare wherever you get your podcasts. You can also do something else for me, folks. You can go and check out historyhit.tv. We've got a battle royale going at the moment. We've got Eleanor Yanniger's medieval lives taking on Tristan, the Tristorian's hunt for the lost Ninth Legion of the Roman Empire. They are duking it out at the top of our league table for watches on historyhit.tv in a battle that I think has got the fans of ancient history against the fans of medieval history all riled up, mobilised, mobilised. Join historyhit.tv. It's like Netflix for history. Loads and loads of documentaries just about history. You can find your tribe on there. Who are you going to be? Eleanor or Tristorian? Get involved. In the meantime, everyone, enjoy this episode of Warfare. Hi, Saul. Thanks so much for coming on the Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? Very good. And thank you very much for inviting me, James. Not a problem at all. Congratulations, by the way, on the new book. How has it been releasing Crucible of Hell in times of COVID? <laughs> well, it's not ideal, is it? Mainly because you can't get out in the streets banging your drum as we love doing and talking to people face to face. But having said that, it's opened up a real world of possibilities in terms of publicity internationally. And you don't actually have to leave, even leave your own home. So I think the whole Zoom revolution has been pretty good in one sense. Of course, we've done it as needs must, but it'll be a useful tool in the armory, to be truthful, for upcoming publications. So I think every time I need to do something and it's tricky to get there, I'll almost certainly do a Zoom interview in future. Yeah. And instead of turning down these opportunities, you can just do the Zoom option now. And I think everyone's kind of adapted to it quite well. I mean, I've got to admit, day job wise, as a university professor, I don't know about you, but it's death by Zoom. But when it's discussions like this, I can live with it. It's far more fun. 
Yeah, tutorials I'm happy to do on Zoom. Generally speaking, you don't want to do a face-to-face full-length lecture. You don't even really want to do a seminar on Zoom. So no, I mean, we're all looking forward to getting back to normal. But at the same time, it can definitely save time. I think not only with things like tutorials, I used to go up to London quite a lot, James, just to meet students face-to-face. I think we'll be doing a lot of those meetings in the future on Zoom. And when it comes to writing books and research, of course, interviewing people, chatting to people, getting information that you maybe you would have done by email, maybe you would have done by phone. And in many cases, of course, the actual interviews. I traveled all over America for a couple of my books interviewing people. I suspect we'll be doing a lot of those interviews by Zoom, which will be great in the one sense. But actually missing that physical contact with people, I think I'll always still be doing a bit of that. That's an interesting point. I suppose as a historian, Do you think you can build the same amount of trust and a rapport between you and the person you're interviewing via Zoom? Do you think it's going to affect the richness of the history you get from those interviews? It might. It's a good point. I mean, any of us who've spent any time interviewing, you know, participants in the events we're writing about will realise that you do forge, ideally, you know, really quite a strong emotional bond. It's one of the reasons why those sort of interviews are so draining, actually. I mean, people might be surprised to hear this, but you weren't actually out there in my case. You know, I wasn't actually out there in combat. But talking to people who've been through these things and not just their experience of war, but how it's affected them after their relationships with their families, you know, that goes really down to the heart of what it is to be human and to fight in a war and try and keep your humanity, which is very, very much in the forefront of my mind when I'm thinking about Okinawa, is not an easy thing to do. And I think every soldier goes through that really tough moment, frankly, where they try and keep some kind of shred of humanity. And talking to them years later, it's often the first time when they're talking to someone who's not a family member that they've really been as open about the challenges they faced and how difficult it's been to come to terms with it. So you might lose a little bit of that richness. But at the same time, it's going to make it a lot easier to conduct interviews and a lot cheaper, frankly. So it's six of one and half dozen the other. If I was to err on one side or another, I'd say you will lose a little bit by not having face-to-face contact. Yeah, I think you're probably right. But you mentioned Okinawa there. And one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on the podcast now was because we heard the recent news, I think quite shocking news for some, that soil used to build the new US airbase at Okinawa contains the remains of war dead from both sides of the battle. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later in the podcast. But before we do, tell us, for those who don't know, where is Okinawa and why is it forever seared in our collective memory? Well, Okinawa's geography is important to the story of why it was fought over. It's 400 miles south of the most southerly Japanese home island, and yet it's part of Japan proper too. It's the most southerly of the prefectures. Now, the reason it's so significant is because it's a decent size, 70 miles long, between 2 and 20 miles wide. It's a strange shape with very thin bits in the middle. And the Americans were eyeing it come the spring of 1945, really, as a base from which to attack Japan proper. So they would use it as not only a base for an anchorage for their ships, but also from where they could bomb Japan and eventually launch fighter attacks that would go in at the same time as ground troops. One thing we often forget at the end of the Second World War, particularly the end of the Pacific War, is that 
the Americans and Japanese, of course, did not know how it was going to end. And there was an assumption, particularly on the side of the Americans, that the war would probably go on into 1946. There were plans to invade Japan in the November 1945 and the spring of 1946, and it would have been a huge invasion. So Okinawa has been captured in the spring of 1945 as a prelude to that. And it's really the end of the long process, which began at Pearl Harbor, of course, with the Japanese attack that brings the US into the war, moves through Guadalcanal, the first serious offensive by the Americans in the Pacific, quite close to Australia. And then these two strands of attack that move through the center of the Pacific and then up and this is really the more southerly axis of advance, which was MacArthur's axis, which came from Australia through New Guinea and then on into the Philippines. And those two prongs of advance finally meet at Okinawa. And this will be the final staging post before the attack on Japan proper. And the reason the battle's so brutal is because the closer the Americans get to Japan, the tougher the Japanese seem to fight. And I suppose there's some pretty obvious reasons for that. But when they get to Okinawa, it's a big size island. You know, they fought on, generally speaking, on smaller bits of real estate than that. And they have a large number of men on Okinawa and they are fighting in the same way that they'd fought all the way through the Pacific War, which is to the last man. There was very much a tradition, really going back from the sort of warrior tradition in Japanese culture that you did not surrender, that that was humiliating and that it was better to die giving your life for the emperor and for the empire. And so to actually kill 100,000 Japanese soldiers and very formidable soldiers was going to be a really tough ask. And it was made even more difficult on Okinawa by the fact that the Japanese had spent the previous nine months before the battle begins digging in really to these very formidable defensive positions in the center of the island of Okinawa. And it's a coral island, so really tough to dig into. But if you're already in that position, and if you imagine the Americans attacking these fixed positions, these heavily entrenched, literally dug tunnels deep into a series of ridges. You take one side of the ridge, you're about to move on to the next ridge, and they're still inside the ridge that you think you've taken because there is no one left on top of it, but they're all inside it. So it was an absolutely brutal battle that went on for three months, during which time the Japanese fought tooth and nail, and the Americans incurred, up to that point, their heaviest losses of the Pacific War. Given the defences and the fact, like you say, there's 100,000 Japanese troops who are dug in and dug under. So as you move through, you're moving metre by metre. And then I assume having to turn and fight back behind you as Japanese troops crop back up through these holes and gaps in the foundations beneath you. Given all of that, is there not a way that the Americans could have got around Okinawa or avoided that giant battle? Well, they considered plenty of things, to be fair, James. They were looking actually at avoiding Okinawa in the first place. They were initially thinking about going through Formosa, modern Taiwan, and into China, and then up the coast of China, and then jumping from there, possibly from Korea into Japan. But any of those options would have involved some pretty serious fighting. I think Okinawa made sense. It certainly seemed to make sense to the American planners because it was the quickest route to Japan, and it seemed to promise the quickest way to end the war. Of course, we know that it turned into an absolutely brutal battle, but logistically attacking the Japanese home islands from the bases they had prior to that, which were a long way even from Okinawa, simply wasn't practical. They needed somewhere a little bit closer. So either you go to the mainland or you go to Okinawa. And the mainland, I suspect, in fact, I don't suspect, I know would have been even tougher because there were millions of Japanese soldiers undefeated on the Chinese mainland who would have been brought into play if the Americans had landed there. So 
brutal as it seems, it probably was the best solution. The quibble I've got, actually, having looked at the battle itself and the way it unfolded, is the lack of imagination shown by the American commander, a man called Lieutenant General Simon Bolivar Buckner. And the Bolivar is significant because he's the son, believe it or not, of a famous Civil War general, a Confederate Civil War general. And you very much get the sense that the Simon Jr. is in his father's shadow and he's always trying to prove himself. But the problem with him being given command of the 10th Army, which is the US Army that lands on Okinawa, is it's his first field command. He is inexperienced in command. And it's really a bit mystifying why he gets given the command in the first place. I mean, he's the next man up in terms of seniority, but he has no field experience. And there were some very good generals, some of the generals coming back, of course, from Europe, but also some very good generals in the Pacific, mainly those, to be fair, under MacArthur's command, but also some Marine generals. And you very much get the sense when you look at the decision making for Buckner to be given command of the 10th Army, there's a bit of inter-service rivalry going on here between the US Army, the US Navy, Navy and the US Marines. The US Army are particularly jealous at the sort of role the US Navy have played, this kind of foremost role they've seen to play in the Pacific War up to this point. And they really want to put one of their men in command of the biggest operations. So it's very much a US Army decision to make sure that the commander of a US Army, they'd never been a commander of a US Army that was a Marine general up to this point. So they insisted it's an army man. And Buckner was seen as a man who got on with people. And he did, you know, he reminds me a little bit of Eisenhower, not quite as effective as Eisenhower. But what Eisenhower was very sensible at doing is not trying to interfere too much with field command. The problem with Buckner is he was a field commander. He tried to exercise it and he exercised it, in my view, very badly. He could, for example, have considered the possibility being urged by his subordinates to try a second amphibious landing behind the Japanese defences. This is what they were worried about. And we know this because there's a very detailed account written very unusually by a senior Japanese staff officer who did not commit suicide, was given permission not to, and wrote a very full account of the mindset of the Japanese during the battle, which I quote from very much in the book. And it's very revealing. And what Colonel Yahara, this man, says is, we were terrified there was going to be a second landing. We kept a lot of troops down south for as long as we could. And only when we'd lost so many men in the front line did we finally move them north. Now, that move north of the troops guarding the southern coast coincided with the advice to Buckner from his subordinates to launch this second amphibious operation. It would have come at just the right time and it never took place. Wow. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. First of all, it's so often the case that it's inter-service rivalry that plays such an annoying and interfering role in either some of the best people getting the good jobs or some of the worst decisions in the history of warfare being made. And by the sounds of it here, it's just another case of that taking place. But it sounds like that this also contributed to the fact that you've got one front of this fight and it leads into it being one of the most ferocious battles of the Second World War, with both forces just constantly up against each other on that particular front line. And your book title, Crucible of Hell, of course, comes from a veteran's account of being at Akonawa, doesn't it? So give us a play-by-play, -play, a step-by-step -step of how this battle plays out from what happens at the point of the landing through to the point where the Americans finally get victory at Okinawa. You know, it's an extraordinary story in which just about every method of warfare is tapped by the Japanese. So desperate are they to cling onto this island, not because they think they can actually 
defend it to the end, as it were, or defend it successfully. Although there is some indication that the high command in Tokyo, you know, are madly considering that that's a possibility. But because I think this was a delaying action now, James, I mean, two things are really going on in the minds of Japanese planners. Uh, One, to delay as long as possible in the hope that so many Americans, so many allied lives will be lost, that it will bring the Americans to the negotiating table and they won't have to unconditionally surrender, which of course is the ultimate humiliation for them. And they know really is is the beginning of the end of everything that they've tried to create, which in effect is their big co-prosperity empire. They're desperately trying to keep some of it. And madly, even as beginning as 1945, are thinking that's a possibility. So if they can create a real brutal meat grind of a battle on Okinawa, this might, they think, convince the Americans to negotiate for peace. I mean, they clearly didn't understand the Americans and understand the level of determination since Pearl Harbor that existed in the breasts of not only the commanders, but the ordinary American soldiers to finish the job and make sure the Japanese surrender. But in any case, the plan is to fight as long as possible. And interestingly, when the Americans invade on the 1st of April, which was April Fool's Day and also happened to be Easter that year, the Japanese are very cleverly built their fortifications in the centre of the island and they decide not to contest the landings on the beaches. So the Americans land and Buckner's absolutely astonished. He's like, where is everyone? And he really thinks he's hoodwinked the Japanese. Actually, he's the one who's been hoodwinked because they are biding their time. This is all on the advice of Colonel Yaharu, who I mentioned earlier, who really decides, you know, this needs to be a battle of attrition. If we try and fight them on the beaches, they've got such an advantage in firepower, both from the air and also from the sea, that will be destroyed. So we need to be in our underground bunkers where this huge bombardment, this huge firepower the Americans can bring to bear is going to have little effect on us. So for the first few days, the American troops make extraordinary headway. They cross the island in just two days. It's quite narrow at the point that they land, roughly halfway up, maybe a third of the way up the island they land. And most of the Japanese defences to the south of that. So they send forces in both directions, as any sensible commander would. You've got to find out where the main enemy is. And the Marines go north and the army goes south. I should just say that the army that Buckner is commanding is really composed of two elements, two corps. And one of them is a Marine Corps and one of them is an Army Corps. So for the sake of argument, roughly half the force is Marine, U.S. Marines, and half is Army. And the important distinction to make about U.S. Marines is that they're really assault troops. They're designed for amphibious operations. They are not designed for long attritional campaigns ashore. So what you really want to do with the Marines is get a foothold and then take them off and let someone else do the fighting. That rarely happened, actually, even in the other battles of the Pacific. But that's what they're designed for. And they're really light infantry. They're really quite lightly equipped. They have artillery, of course, but their whole modus operandi is to be very aggressive, to advance forward, a little bit like our commandos today. But in any case, the early stages of the battle went very well for the Americans, or at least they thought they did. And it was only on about day six or seven that they begin to come up against some quite serious opposition. The Marines are moving deep into the north, where there is relatively little opposition. There's a bit in an area called the Matobu Peninsula, which is in the north of the island. But it's the army troops coming south that bump against the first outer works of what is known as the main Japanese defences, the so-called Shuri Line. And the heart of the Shuri Line, or the main part of the Shuri Line, is at the bit that stretches across the centre of the island from Naha, which is the capital on the west coast, all the way across the other side of the island. And it's at that section, that belt, that the main Japanese defences are. So 
The American troops coming south begin to meet the first serious opposition, think they can brush it aside and can't. And really effectively what happens after that first week or so of fighting is this increasingly attritional battle in which Buckner feeds in more and more troops. First of all, he thinks he can do the job of the army alone. And that, by the way, is another inter-service decision because he really wants the credit to go for taking the island or at least taking the main part of the island. He wants that credit to go to the army. They are simply not capable of breaking through the very effective Japanese defences, lose an awful lot of troops in the first two or three times they try it. And Buckner then decides to pause for a little bit while he brings up artillery. And this really sums up Buckner. He's been trained in the US Army War Colleges in the 1930s in the tactics that still prevailed in the US Army at that stage. And that is really that the artillery piece is king. This, of course, is a leftover of the First World War. You can see a similar sort of process going on in the British Army. And the feeling is that, you know, if you've got enough firepower, sooner or later, you're going to knock the enemy out of their defensive positions and then you roll over the top of them. The infantry really just take possession of what's already been destroyed. Well, for the reasons I've already explained, that was never going to be the case on Okinawa. And they learnt by harsh experience that actually you advanced by feet, literally sometimes only 100 yards a day in which thousands of casualties were being taken. I mean, it was an absolutely brutal battle. Now, by the end of April, by which time the army has been fighting hard for almost three weeks, probably more than three weeks, Buckner makes the decision to move the Marines south and to bolster the army. This is around the same time he's decided not to try a second landing, which he could have used the Marines for. In any case, he bolsters his main lines with the Marines. So you now you've got the two corps fighting side by side. But part of the problem with this is that the island is only about three or four miles across at this point. You've got an enormous number of men in a relatively short space. We are talking about a line that's more populated with soldiers than some of the front lines in the First World War. I mean, ludicrously overcrowded battlefield that simply added to the number of casualties they were taking. And the other thing that needs to be stressed at this stage of the battle is how effective the Japanese artillery was. They had more big guns on the island of Okinawa than they had used in any of the other Pacific fighting up to this point for the simple reason that they intended to fight this type of battle. And actually... Most of the casualties taken by the Americans in the battle were, as a result, caused by artillery fire. You've got the double whammy of it being incredibly difficult to dig into this coral rock with only a kind of light coating of soil on top of it. And yet at the same time, if a piece of ordnance hits this rock, it throws up splinters that would be as dangerous as the actual bits of shrapnel themselves. So, you know, really brutal conditions for the Americans to fight in. No proper cover until it begins to pour with rain at the beginning of May. So the Marines are now in the line at this point, you know, and the conditions are not only cold, wet, they're also getting increasingly insanitary because the lines are moving such small distances that you've got soldiers fighting through a battlefield that is choked with refuse, with corpses, and of course with excrement and the waste that any army leaves behind it. And if you're not moving, there's nowhere to put it. And it took all the armies of the First World War quite a long time to work out the kind of sanitary facilities you would need for that kind of fixed warfare. And they certainly weren't expecting it and certainly hadn't plan for it on Okinawa. And some of the descriptions by the soldiers fighting in the front line, one of the most famous authors, of course, is a man called Eugene Sledge, E.B. Sledge, who wrote a wonderful book called With the Old Breed. I say wonderful. I mean, it's beautifully written, but it's a heartbreaking account of his experience as really quite a sensitive young man, would have been going to college when war broke out, joins up as an ordinary grunt in the Marines. And his baptism of fire, first on Peleliu, the island that's attacked before 
Okinawa and then on Okinawa itself is really heartbreaking. And his description of the battlefield at the beginning of June is mind-blowing. You know, the corpses, the smell. You know, even to see dead American bodies on the battlefield was very unusual for Marines. You always collect your dead, but so shell-torn and so difficult to fight over and difficult to defend were these locations and difficult to hide in that there were bodies everywhere. You know, and it was a really, really brutal fight underlined, I think, by the sheer number of American non-combatant casualties during this battle, something like 26,000 of the 76,000 casualties. So that's about a third of them were non-combatant casualties. So of course, some are ill, but an awful lot of them were battle fatigue, PTSD, whatever you want to call it. They just simply couldn't go on. Their minds were shot. So it's the morale that kind of hits rock bottom here because humanity has dropped to some of its lowest, most depraved standards by the sounds of it. You're listening to Warfare on Dan Snow's History. More coming up after this. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. How is it then that the Americans managed to secure victory? Is it purely by the preponderance of force that they're able to keep pushing in troops and replacing those on the front lines? Yes, in a nutshell, they are prepared to keep feeding in as many troops as they need. They land with 186,000 troops. They've got more in reserve. There's a massive naval force offshore, which I should mention, actually, because although 90% of the fighting, as it's told in the book, is on land, there's also a fierce struggle going on at sea. The Japanese have worked out at this point because they've pretty much got no surface fleet left. In the beginning of the war, their surface fleet was, of course, as we know, a match for the Americans. But by the end of the war, slowly but surely, the sheer industrial might of the Americans has produced ship after ship and aircraft carrier after aircraft carrier to replace all their losses. And the Japanese haven't been able to do that. So they come to the rather desperate solution that they're going to use kamikaze. Now, we know about the kamikaze anecdotally, I suppose, whether you know about the detail of the Battle of Okinawa or not. What few people realise is that it was a deliberate tactic to try and win the battle on its own. I mentioned before about the Japanese high command having these ideas that they might actually win the battle rather optimistically. Well, if they were going to do it, they were going to do it with kamikaze. So they put together enormous numbers of so-called special attack units. And they're not just flying bombs. They're not just planes with bombs that are going to be flown into American aircraft carriers. They're also mini submarines, manned submarines that they're going to use against ships. They've got speedboats they're going to use against ships. And they've also got flying rockets. So pretty much every method of suicide attack. And it's interesting, isn't it, when we think of suicide attacks from the Islamists really over the last 30 or 40 years. But these tactics were were certainly pioneered against a Western enemy by the Japanese in the Second World War. And they were effective. Something like 200 ships were badly damaged 
in the American fleet. But the American Fifth Fleet had more than a thousand warships and support ships. So you can see that, yes, they took their toll and yes, they did a lot of damage, but it was never going to be enough to actually force the Fifth Fleet to withdraw. That's what the Japanese were hoping to do, to force the American Fifth Fleet to withdraw so that in the parlance of one account I read about the Japanese high command in January February 1945, before the battle begins, so that once they've driven the US Fifth Fleet away, they can literally just mop up the American invaders on the island. And that was never going to happen. And yet, nevertheless, again, some of the most heartbreaking accounts of the battle are of defending against kamikaze attack. I mean, unbelievably chilling experience to know that the person in that plane flying above you and at you is prepared to lose his life to fly his bomb into you. And ships were sunk as a result of this. So they were prepared to stop at nothing. But despite all of that, the Americans weren't driven off. Their fleet did remain there. Their supply ships did keep coming in. And they were able to feed more and more troops onto the island until, as you put it, the job was done. It wasn't glamorous. It wasn't particularly effective. But sooner or later, they were going to get the job done. And one of the things you notice when you look at the American experience in the Pacific War is how unbelievably stoical and determined they were. No, they weren't prepared to give their lives in a kind of suicidal fashion in the same way that the Japanese were. But they were all convinced that the job needed to be done. This The collective shock that the Americans experienced after Pearl Harbor felt by both civilians and servicemen, you know, we can only equate to the experience of Americans in 9-11 in more recent times. And we can see from that that there was an utter determination to have their revenge. And the similar sort of thinking is going on in the Second World War. So am I surprised that they kept fighting even in these brutal conditions? No, I'm not. But it is chilling to write about it. And it is chilling to understand now looking back that Western Allied troops in the Second World War experienced this kind of combat because I'd always been led to believe that it was confined really to the fighting on the Eastern Front. But some of the fighting in Okinawa and maybe some of the other islands, Iwo Jima, is every bit as brutal and bestial as that. I mean, what you describe is the epitome of total war, isn't it? Everything from the vast mobilization of the thousands of US ships through to just pumping through as many troops as possible to make sure this battle is won no matter the cost. And it does end up becoming the last major battle of the Second World War, doesn't it? Yes. And, you know, as I say, that, of course, was not known at that time. And the important thing about the battle, certainly when you're reading about it and when you're talking about it, is that we try and get into the mindset of people who were there at that time. If they'd known what was going to happen next, they probably wouldn't have invaded Okinawa in the first place. But of course, they didn't know. The real key thing to understand about the eventual use of nuclear weapons is that although, of course, they've been developing them for years and, that you know, it was a secret, but of course, there were many people in the US defense and military establishment who were aware of that. One thing they did not know, James, is whether or not they would actually work. They had a pretty good idea. The physicists were certainly convinced they would work, but until they actually test them, they didn't know for sure. So the battle had to play itself out for three long months this meat grinder continued until the Japanese finally withdraw right to the bottom of the island, their last redoubt, a place called the Kayan Peninsula. And it's in that last redoubt that the Japanese commanders commit ritual suicide, as they are expected to do, having lost the battle. And the Americans finally plant their flag on the south of the island on the 21st of June, which signifies the battle is over. All eyes at this stage are now turned towards Japan and what must be coming next. Am I right in saying that more people died on and around Okinawa 
then died in the ensuing atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yes, you are right. And I know it's hard to believe, isn't it? Statistics in war can vary enormously. But even if you go on the most pessimistic reading of the number of people killed at Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and of course, they weren't all killed immediately. and Many were, maybe up to 120,000 killed at a stroke in the explosions. But then at least another 80,000, if not more, die of their wounds of radiation sickness associated illnesses. But even that horrific figure isn't as high as the number of people who died in and around Okinawa. The breakdown's reasonably easy to get to. It's about 100 to 105,000 uh, Japanese servicemen, including Navy. It's about 12,500 American servicemen with another 37,000 wounded. And those figures, although it seems heavily heaped in advantageous terms towards the Americans, were really quite bad casualty figures for the Americans. It was certainly the bloodiest battle they had fought, and they weren't used to losing so many men compared to the Japanese. But the far more chilling figure of both of those, and one, frankly, that would have been repeated on Japan proper, were the number of civilians who were killed, 125,000. Now, you might imagine that a lot of them were simply died in the fighting, and of course they did, but the vast majority of them were either killed by the Japanese or committed suicide. I think the real bulk is in the latter category. That suicide is really hard to believe when you think that these are Okinawan civilians who ethnically a little bit different from the Japanese. You know, so why on earth would they agree with this absolute demand from the Japanese military to take their lives rather than hand themselves over to the Americans? Well, part of the problem is the brainwashing that had gone on in Okinawa for the last 10 years at least, in which the whole education system had been taken over by the Japanese, insisting that they are taught Japanese history, Japanese precepts, and that they think like Japanese, you know, which is fair enough until you realise the downside of this, is that, of course, as the Japanese empire was beginning to implode, many of them felt they had a duty to do what they were told. And one of the reasons they went along with the insistence that they not only kill themselves, but kill their own families, was because the Japanese soldiers and Japanese civilian administration had convinced them that if the Americans got their hands on them, they would be raped and murdered, so they might as well kill themselves anyway. That was a lie. Were there any American atrocities? Undoubtedly. I have to say, I didn't come across many, but of course in war, there are bound to be instances of murder and rape. But they were relatively few, and the vast majority of Okinawan civilians who came into the hands of the Americans were then turned over to civilian officials who had all been pre-planned that they would look after them. They had these big camps set up. You know, not terribly wonderful conditions in those camps, but they were fed, they were clothed, and they survived, basically. And But for the Americans actually interning a lot of Okinawan civilians, many more people would have lost their lives. So the 125,000 Okinawan civilians to die, I think that figure had a real effect on President Truman. I mean, of course, he was horrified by all the figures of casualties, but he was well aware that when they got to Japan proper, the Japanese civilian population would, on the one hand, try to resist, and on the other hand, an awful lot of people would commit suicide. And thirdly, of course, people were simply going to die in the fighting. So there is no doubt there would have been a bloodbath on the Japan home islands if they'd been invaded. And Truman was well aware of that. He's gone on the record as saying, the decision I took to use nuclear weapons wasn't just just about saving American servicemen. It was about saving Japanese soldiers' lives, but also Japanese civilians. Well, that was going to be my next question, Sol, because that's astonishing, isn't it? The idea that when we think of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and those shocking pictures, the complete annihilation of entire cities 
but going through the head of the President of the United States is the fact that you may be able to make this bizarre calculation that if you drop these bombs, not only are you going to potentially bring the war to an end quicker and save American and allied lives, but potentially also save millions of lives of Japanese as well. It's almost unbelievable. Yes, it is unbelievable. But we know it's on the record in contemporaneous documents that that is what he was thinking. He goes to his grave years later, of course, believing he's done the right thing. But what's interesting about his position during those years, I'm not saying for a second he didn't have the odd sleepless night. I mean, who wouldn't, frankly, who'd given the order to use nuclear weapons? And it's not just a question of those people killed in those two bombings. It's also a question of now you've unleashed the genie from the bottle, frankly, and who knows where this is going to lead. And, you know, and it's been a preoccupation of defence planners in the States and everywhere else ever since. So there's no doubt he felt a tremendous moral responsibility. But despite all of that, he also felt he'd done the right thing. He felt, and this is certainly backed up by most of his senior advisors, that he had no option, actually, <laughs> mainly because all his senior advisors, that is civil, military, and here's the interesting one, scientific as well, we're advising him to do the same thing. And, you know, there's a little bit of a misconception that some of the physicists who developed the bomb were against its use. There were some middle ranking physicists, shall we say, who had moral qualms and definitely spoke out a little bit. But the senior people, the people right at the top, Fermi, Oppenheimer, the Nobel Prize winners who were really key to the development of nuclear weapons, were all insistent that once you had it, you had to use it. And here's the interesting thing, not demonstrate it. Of course, people have argued, you know, then and now, why didn't you just show the Japanese what you could do without killing all those people. The physicists were convinced it wouldn't have any effect. And I think they were probably right, actually. I mean, one of the interesting things about the Japanese military, even after the second bomb has been dropped, is that they were not for giving in. It was really chiefly thanks to the civil advisors of the emperor and the emperor himself that we got to a point where the peace negotiations began and then they finally agreed to surrender when the Allies very sensibly, I think, they didn't want to, but very sensibly agreed to let the Japanese keep the emperor. This is the real key moment because if you don't let them keep the emperor, he's not going to give the order to surrender. And if he doesn't give the order to surrender, the moral authority that lay with him as effectively the commander in chief may not have had the effect it did on the military. So there were diehards in the military. They attempted a coup, which would, of course, in theory, overthrown the emperor's government. The war minister to the end was a diehard. He committed suicide on the day that the Japanese surrendered. You know, they were senior military people who did not want to give in even after the two atomic bombs had been dropped. So the idea that they would have given in without the use of atomic bombs, I don't believe for a minute, I'm afraid. I think there was going to be a lot more hard fighting and dying to go. So, in essence, the Battle of Okinawa, the greatest air-land-sea battle in history, really does shape the end of the Second World War, in many ways brings those battles to an end, but it also shapes the world that's left behind for us today. Such a seminal battle, isn't it? It is. And I was well aware of the Battle of Okinawa before I started research on it, but I didn't really understand its significance. And we get back to the point I made earlier, which is that we know how the Second World War ended, but we don't know how it might have ended. You know, it's the same with all history, of course. But, you know, I say to my students, I'm sure you do too, you must try and not 
leap ahead to where we've got to and then work your way back from that point. You've got to get into the moment and try and understand the decision making as it unfolds in real time rather than with the benefit of hindsight. Difficult for a historian to do, of course, but you can try and do that. And in that sense, the battle unfolds in a inevitably brutal way, but in a way that has no inevitable ending. One of the poignant things about the book for me is the individual people that I include, their stories. And certainly the US servicemen are quaking in their boots as they wait in the camps. They've got through this absolute brutal battle, but they're anticipating something worse is to come. So That it turned out to be the last great battle of the Second World War was an absolute godsend for those who'd been through it and those, frankly, uh, both British and American, who were being hurriedly moved towards the theatre of war for what would have been the invasion. The numbers are pretty startling. Five million US servicemen are going to be involved in the invasion of the Japanese home islands. And, and here's the interesting one, which we often forget, a million British servicemen. Now, that probably means British and Commonwealth servicemen, but nevertheless, under British command, huge armies and the casualties would have been very, very severe, of course. Oh, yeah, well, they're already being retrained, regrouped. The Lancaster bombers are being put onto different types of training and missions, ready to bomb Japan. This is everything that's about to take place, isn't it? All of these steps are already in motion for that last big battle to take the Japanese mainland. And it's avoided partly because of Okinawa and then, of course, because of the atomic bombings as well. Is it shocking then, or perhaps just surprising, to take us back to the point I made at the beginning and to bring this history back to life in so many ways from current and recent events that the soil used to build these US airbases, these new airbases on Okinawa, contains the remains of the war dead from that important battle. Should we be shocked by this? Yeah, a little bit. But at the same time, if you understand the nature of the fighting on Okinawa and you understand the battlefield, I'm not that surprised, actually. I hope people don't find that statement too shocking. But the reason I'm not surprised is because I hope I've tried to give a sense of the claustrophobic nature of the battlefield. Okinawa is a sizable island, but the main bit in the south, which is where most people live, frankly, and where most of the bases are, and where most of the fighting took place, is a relatively small area. It's an area in which an enormous number of people died in a relatively small space. And so vast numbers of people were obliterated, blown to pieces, and their body parts would have just lain there. The Japanese, of course, were buried in a pretty rudimentary fashion immediately. Later on, a little bit more system was put into play. As much as they could, American servicemen were taken to the big cemeteries that they created immediately after the battle. But an enormous number of bodies and body parts were left just where they lay. So that soil that is being dug up now to create this new airbase, it includes bits of bodies and bits of bones. I'm not that surprised, shocking as it sounds. So is there anything to be done about this? Well, possibly you could just let them lie where they are and bring in earth from somewhere else, possibly. But any island, I mean, for example, if they tried to do the same thing on Iwo Jima, which is a much smaller island, and more people die per square inch there than even on Okinawa, you would have the same problem. So it's the nature of the battlefield. It's the nature of the fact that the populous area in Okinawa is still crammed into a very small space. And one of the sadnesses, actually, about 
visiting Okinawa, which I did, of course, to research the book, is that you don't get enough of a sense of how the battlefield was because it's been so built over. So the locations in which many people fought and died have already been built over. So the idea they're now digging some of them up, not deliberately, presumably just so that they can use Earth in this construction, and it involves body parts. It seems to me, if I'm right, that that is just a consequence of the nature of the battlefield. The idea that they're deliberately digging up somewhere that they know is a resting ground, which of course happens in British cities every now and again when they decide they want to build a block of flats on a former cemetery, then no, I'm less impressed with that. But if it's just in the nature of the island, I'm not that surprised. Do you think this is going to become more common over the next 10, 20 30 years. As the Second World War fades from living memory, do you think it will open the door for there to be more construction on former battlefields, for this to be less of a controversial issue? Because there isn't that potency of it being someone's relative who's still alive or someone who can recall that battle through their own oral history. Yes, possibly. I mean, you could argue that that would be the same for any major war. You know, we could go back to the War of the Spanish Succession, the World War at the beginning of the 18th century, the Napoleonic Wars beginning of the 19th century, Crimean War, you know, a charnel house in this strange peninsula in the Black Sea in the middle of the 19th century, and of course, on into the First World War. But, and here's the important but, the Second World War does still hold a unique place, I think, in the minds, particularly of the Allies. And by the Allies, I include the Russians, actually. And maybe, 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 for that reason, it was the great war of, at least in their minds, and certainly in the minds of British, American and Russian culture, the great moral crusade, as it were. The Americans certainly felt they were fighting a moral crusade against the Japanese, the Germans to a lesser extent, and of course we felt that about Hitler, that you may find that the Second World War lasts longer, as it were, and doesn't naturally slip away into the realms of our memory in the way that some other wars do. I think the Second World War will keep its relevance to Western culture in particular for a fair bit longer. But of course, as the years go by, it's inevitable that some of the more iconic locations will become less iconic. Well, it was the last world war. Let's hope it is the last world war. And it's books like yours, Crucible of Hell, that show just what exactly hell war is. So tell us all, where can people buy Crucible of Hell? Well, it's now out in paperback, which is very handy if you want to take it with you and you're not too keen on an e-reader. I mean, personally, I actually use e-readers for research, particularly when I'm on the move, but I like a book. I'm sure you do too. Physical books are wonderful now. So the book is now out in paperback. You can still get it in hardback, but it's now available in paperback for the very reasonable price of £10. And you can get that on Amazon and pretty much everywhere online. And also in bookshops from Monday, thank heavens. Waterstones and all the independent bookshops are open. So that's wonderful. People can actually physically go into a shop and buy a copy. Well, there you go. Go and support your bookshops as well. Sol, thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. Cheers, James. I feel we had the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thank you for listening to this episode of Warfare Podcast from History Hit. There are plenty of episodes of Warfare and wonderful new material to come if you head to wherever you get your pods and subscribe to Warfare. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.